out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall, as you know, always playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade. And you probably also gather that we do love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn all the way from New York City of Ultra Vivid Scene, because I spoke to Kirk Ralster. I was going to say quite recently, but it was quite a few years ago, actually, um, to find out more about um, all that usual groovy stuff, like love, life, poetry, the creative process, um, and this is it. But just a bit of a word up, the quality and reception was a little bit hit and miss, so we had to stop and start a few times, but hopefully you'll be able to gather what we talk about. And after a few minutes, at least, of casual chat, um, we got down to, yes, the early musical development and this was Kurt's response. Take it away. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that um, in New York, we were actually aware of the C86 cassette, and we were aware of all those bands that were, were closely tracking the the British scene. Um, you know, the the NME did did make it over to New York, uh, including the, the the cassette, and. Uh, eh, so, so definitely the, the whole C86 thing was actually on our radar and part of, you know, our trajectory. Um, going back to my own development, um, I, um, from an early age, I, I studied music and, uh, my, my father was an amateur jazz musician and, uh, I, uh, I grew up listening to a lot of music that wasn't really, uh, pop music. I was really interested in jazz. I was really interested in classical music. I, uh, you know, as a teenager, I listened to a lot of prog rock. And then as in my mid-teens, uh, I started getting involved in, in the scene in, in going on in New York in, uh, in the very early 80s. Um, there was a, a really exciting scene of this uh, kind of no-wave music of uh, bands that I saw like uh, DNA and uh, Lounge Lizards and uh, uh, Contortions. It, it, it was uh, for me. It was really exciting because I was interested in avant-garde jazz, and here was the music that was like uh, much more, um, well, kind of a hybrid of avant-garde jazz and and kind of more popular or song-based impulses. Uh, uh, and I also simultaneously was. Uh, I was actually playing uh, something like jazz, or I, 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 I was quite young, I was a, a, in my mid-teens, but I was playing with uh, older New York musicians who were of this free jazz mentality. And um, that was where I was at. A, a little bit later, a few years later, I, I met an entirely different circle of friends that were Really interesting what was going on in England, and I, I was a member of this band called Crash. Yeah, uh, James Chance of the Contortions, John Laurie, uh, Lydia Lunch, uh, very early versions of Sonic Youth that I saw. Um, I, I mean, I was involved in that music, but I was also involved with seeing really crazy free jazz stuff at the same time. For me, it was all part of the, the same thing, and there was actually a crossover between these two scenes. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, so I, I, um, 
a, a bit later, getting to be like uh, you know, 17, 18 or so, I, I, I fell in with a different crowd that was uh, really focused on what was going on in, in England. And uh, uh, I, I, I was a member of this band called Crash that was led by Mark Dumay, who was a very, very brilliant songwriter uh, uh, who died of AIDS in uh, 1991. Um, he... Uh, so he and the other members of this group were, were uh, uh, well, I suppose our prime influence was uh, the Jesus and Mary chain, which, uh, you know, when I first heard this group, it was a, a real uh, a real revelation because uh, it had what I was interested in. I was interested in uh, the really kind of extreme uh, radical music of... Uh, jazz or no wave stuff but it also had a, a real pop sensibility and I always felt a little uncomfortable with pop music because I thought oh it's uh, it, it's it, it has a very sort of status quo mentality it, it, it keeps things the way it is it's it's too simple uh, everyone likes it you know these sort of arguments maybe maybe I was just too much of a snob or something but this was my sort of uh, sort of feeling about it, but, you know, when I heard the Jesus and Mary chain, I thought, oh, this is actually, um, this is the best of both worlds, because it is really uh, uh, quite radical and aggressive and strange and, and presenting a totally new view, and yet it also has this kind of simple, approachable quality that, that pop music has, uh, and for, for you know, uh, I thought, oh, this is actually pop music, but it's a totally different flavor. It's pop music that's actually almost has quotation marks around it, or is is making a, it is pop music, but it's also outside pop music simultaneously. And for me, that was super interesting and super exciting. Yes, because cause you you mentioned earlier that you were aware of that sort of uh, scene that was happening in the UK, because it was kind of interesting that early to mid-80s period, because you had the sort of charts stuff, which was very, it was that Trevor Horn production sound, it was very polished and shiny and, you know... Um, you know, the sharp sort of drum sounds of people like, uh, you know, ABC and then you had Duran Duran and, and then that kind of quality of, of people like Dire Straits as well. So, it, you know, on one level, you know, I mean, I think you either fell into one, that camp, or there was the indie world. And that went into quite a... I mean, you had bands like the, the you know, the Smiths, but then you had other bands who were making very discordant music like uh, Bogshed and Big Flame and Stump and obviously Jesus and the Mary Chain, which seemed to be sort of people who weren't that bothered about worrying about their career path. It was like they were making a noise for various reasons. Sometimes with the, some of the people that I've interviewed, it was because they're, they're musical limitations, so they couldn't actually copy anybody else. They just had to sort of make the best they could. So that's why some of the bands had such a sort of a strange quality. It's like, well, we, we couldn't play, you know, Johnny Be Good or, you know, anything by the Rolling Stones because we weren't musically capable. But obviously you sound like you were able to sort of deconstruct those sounds or those those kind of musical forms. Yeah, uh, I, I, um, I, I was somebody who did study music a lot from a, a very early age. And, uh, but I, I was also trying to find a way to make a, a statement that made sense to me. And... Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, 
I found that the fact that the Jesus and Mary Chan used only, you know, three or four chords, uh, that, that was amazing because it was, um, most music that used three or four chords was, the, the, the overall statement was very simple, but I found what the Jesus and Mary Chan were doing and saying was actually quite, quite complicated. Uh, and the, the weird uh, disconnect between the, these walls of noise and, and the very simple sing-songy, Phil Spector-ish kind of pop music was, was really beautifully done, I thought, and, and really super exciting in that moment. Uh, and also, I, I felt just super, super smart and super innovative and super, uh, in a way, more radical than if it was just the wall of noise. You know, if you'd separate out the, the, the guitars, it'd be like very clear. Oh, this is just somebody making an avant-garde statement. Very nice. You know, see you later. Uh, but to to combine it so skillfully with uh, the, the simple pop statement, you know, and to suddenly make that simple statement so complicated and maybe so, uh, so difficult to understand. You know, a very simple pop song seems to say something direct and clear like oh i wish you were here and you're not or something like this but um yeah maybe all pop music does have these other dimensions that you know become clear when you love it but for the mary chain i thought that the the complications the other layers were like front and center the the, the ambiguity the the uh, the contradiction between like the simplicity or the direct uh, you know the direct statement and the 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 weird anxiety and the, the noisy distorted guitars. Yes, well, I kind of can see that because um, obviously you know I've listened to quite a lot of interviews with people like John Cale from the Velvet Underground, and they you know again there was that sense of somebody who was kind of classically trained and had an amazing kind of awareness of music, but at the same time enjoyed exploring the forms and the soundscapes and being able to sort of deconstruct what what he'd sort of learned to make something quite unique so were you also quite influenced by people like the velvet underground as well oh yes <laughs> uh, uh, in in uh, in the moments that i started uvs my, my biggest influences were the jesus and mary chain uh the first Velvet underground album um I was listening to quite a lot of Bo Diddley, which uh, I, I, I really loved because of the formal simplicity of it. Like just, uh, you know, it's quite often the songs are just one chord. Uh, and yet there's some like kind of very interesting, complicated statement being made. So, yeah, that, that, that's what I was into. Yeah, so when, when you sort of got the band formed, which was, because I'd sort of put in my own little way, you know, indie pop down at that kind of a five-year period of sort of 83 to 87, basically that's the, the longevity of the Smiths. Um, you came along just at that time when things were changing because the Smiths had finished, and they felt like that kind of sound had had its day as, as you know, we'd sort of been there and done it, and the musical kind of landscape was changing to this dance scene, and then there was grunge as well. So people were looking for the next thing. So I think a lot of bands who had been around in the 80s were thinking this this is kind of like the second album or the third album weren't really going anywhere, and, and they were slowly thinking that was my kind of pop rock indie world gone. So you came along at that time when... Um, things are changing again. So did you find you got your sound for the band together quite quickly? 
it's uh, it's interesting. You know, maybe we were slightly uh, behind the curve in, in New York. Um, uh, I did actually, even in '86, I, I, there's a, a very very obscure uh, seven inch I made that was. Uh, very heavily influenced by the Jesus and Mary chains, and um, so yeah. Now by, by '86, I, I had I had decided that uh, what I liked at the, at that moment was you uh, know uh, pop music that uh, was um, complicated by by strange uh, sonics, um, and um, there to to be clear, there there you know my my the, the UBS story spans from, well, uh, either 87 or 88 through to about 92 or uh, maybe beginning of 93. Um, and this, the, the story is, in fact, not the story of a group, but my own story, because uh, I wrote all the songs for the group, and the uh, first two albums I played... Um, uh, well, the first album I played all the, the instruments. The second album I played almost everything except for for uh, two or three small uh, cameos by you know other musicians. Um, and then the third album was actually made uh, with a, a, a proper group. Uh, but in, in fact, it was always just one individual, and I would recruit people to do uh, touring or to make videos. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 uh, and and maybe this is part of the the reason why the music sounds the way it does. It it, it is kind of uh, uh, one person against the world, as opposed to a small gang against the world. Yes. So, um, because obviously, you know, when when you're sort of obsessed with music and you take it terribly seriously and in an angsty and melancholic sort of way, um, Four AD was definitely one of those labels that anything that that was on it, you know, we would sort of buy and consume until we liked it, you know, because you had bands like Dead Can Dance and then the Copto Twins, and then you had the American sound with, you know the Pixies and Throw Muses. So obviously they were hitting, you know, it just seemed that anything that was on 4AD. So, because I'd done an interview with Kristen Hirsch and she said that she was a bit surprised when she got this phone call from this uh, British guy saying, you know, we want you to be on our label. And she thought, really, I think that's a hoax. But then it turned out to be genuine. So how did you get picked up to uh, be on 4AD? Uh, Yeah, it was a very different situation. I I had a, the story was that I, I, I had been playing in the band Crash, you know, this kind of Jesus and Mary Chain influenced group. And um, we had put together a small tour in England. Uh, in fact, we played a few dates opening for the uh, for My Bloody Valentine in their early incarnation before uh, the Mental Butcher. Uh, but uh, uh, so the, the, the group had, had, had done this tour in, in, in England and I just decided to stay in London. The group kind of fell apart, and I decided uh, I liked being in London more than I liked being in New York at that time. So I stayed and began working on my my uh, ultra vivid scene project. Well, I had I had begun working on it earlier in New York, but I, I continued the work in England. Um, Four ID was very much on on my radar and uh, you know the radar of the folks in. in and crash. Uh, uh, so when I completed my ultra vivid scene demo cassette, I, I, I 
I distributed four copies of it to four labels, and I received three offers back. Um, the labels, hmm, I'm not sure I can remember exactly. It was uh, uh, One Little Indian, which at the time had just started with the sugar cubes. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I actually came very close to, to signing with them, and then, and then uh, I, I, 4ID got in contact. And uh, 4ID was always my first choice. And um, yeah, from the beginning, I, I, I hit it off quite well with uh, Ivo from 4ID. So. Yes, and um, interestingly enough, because you know, obviously, because I sort of interviewed um, Lawrence from Felt, and also Momus, who was just for Momus, um, and they were very much kind of like they were the band. You know, there was no other real setup. Though I think Lawrence played with various guitarists during the eighties period, especially. And and but the interesting thing is that you, you're, the longevity of um, uh, UVS is almost the same as like virtually every band I've interviewed, you know, like this five-year period of, mm-hmm. you know, you do the single and album. In in those days, you know, you did a John Peel session, you know, that was often the thing that sort of gave people a bit more confidence and get a few more dates outside their sort of, you know, the local scene. And then, you know, the second album, a bit tricky. And if anybody ever toured America, they'd come back and, you know, literally it was like only a matter of weeks before the whole thing would explode and they'd all disappear and not speak to each other for 30 years. So, mm-hmm. so you, you know, you had a quite a similar kind of lifespan right right well i mean i think that's kind of built into the industry i mean um you know uh unless somebody's you know hugely commercially successful and can sustain it um it's kind of normal that that's at that time people were given that sort of chance uh you know uh, to, to be blunt my first album was you know very inexpensive to make and and did sell reasonably well and got critical acclaim. So I was given a large budget to make a second record, which was also was even was the most commercially successful. Um, and of course, given a larger budget for the third record, which of course was the the difficult one, the the difficult third record that um, you know was commercially disappointing. And um, uh, you know, it, it's kind of normal for people to move on at point and that move on at that point I, I was no exception yes i mean did you um was it a hard decision after you'd sort of release um rev because you were on 4ad in columbia at the time so i mean did it did you were you kind of relieved when you said that is going to be it now um it it, it uh it, it wasn't entirely easy uh but i i had to admit to myself that um I, I, I guess I, I just realized I didn't uh, I didn't see a future trying to be a pop music person uh, for the rest of my life. I I uh, I had gotten a lot out of it and it had been really challenging. It was really interesting, but there were other things I wanted to do in life, and I kind of went and did them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, did you? Because the other thing that kind of uh, sort of speaking to people that really tripped them up was kind of the admin, you know, like the publishing. Did you manage to navigate those waters so that you have an ownership to your music? Uh, yeah, I actually uh, had received like some bad offers for publishing, and luckily uh, didn't take those offers. Uh, however. You know, I do. Um, I do um, the, the songs for what that's worth. Uh, I can't say there's a ton amount of uh, interest in it. I, I still do get uh, you know royalty check uh, for airplay and uh, other usage every year. 
But uh, I haven't quite gotten landed the, uh, the big advertisement or the big movie, uh, uh, the big movie placement. Um, uh, you know, for some groups, that's the, I guess for a lot of young groups now, that's actually the entire aim. Yeah, uh, they no longer even aim to to uh, you know to sell any sort of material, you know, as a CD or vinyl or anything. They're they're just all about placing the, the song in the advertisement, um, uh, which is a little sad, perhaps. But I guess that's how things go. Times change. Well, I think in the 80s, actually, that was a real phenomenon. And I think it was around 86, 87, where the charts were filled. I think it was probably 86, actually, the filled with the hits of that year were all sort of uh, songs that appeared in massive blockbuster films. And, you know, they were the, you know, from, you know, all those Tom Cruise things and Rocky and all that, you know, that was the one that the business suddenly realised where they could actually score big time with their sort of, uh, un- you know, shifting units. So it was a bit depressing in that way. I mean, artistically, you know, you had that and then you had the other side, which was the whole dance scene that started to emerge with bands like the Happy Mondays and the Soup Dragons and the rave culture and that that whole sort of summer of love. And then you you obviously had, you know, people like the Pixies, the Throw Muses, and then you had Seattle grunge scene. So, so musically, you know, things were still quite interesting, but... But um, I expect a lot of the business was desperate to try and, you know, sell us sort of or get a song sort of on a Tom Cruise movie would have been just, you know, cash back, really, isn't it? Right, exactly, exactly. So, um, yes. Oh, you're nearly fading there. Are you still there? I'm still here. Hello. Yes. Hello. So, so then, you know, just briefly then, because obviously it's kind of in, interesting in the sense that after that experience, you know, your creative world has continued but but sort of outside you know the band so you know is it possible just to sort of you know just to give us a sort of a flavor of, of then what happened next yes uh, um right um uh okay so um initially after deciding that i no longer wanted to continue to make uh pop records I uh, spent uh, a few years, about five years, working as a uh, record producer and recording engineer. Uh, so I, you know, stayed in the, the music industry and was involved with it, and you know, continued with my contacts that I had made from uh, uh, being a part of the music industry, which is a, a very strange place. Um, I, I, after about five years, I, I, I decided that I, I just really didn't like the music industry. It, it, it seemed filled with so many uh, desperate and untrustworthy people. Um, and I didn't want to define myself as a desperate or untrustworthy person. So uh, I, uh, I, at this that point, I, I, I really hung it up. I... I, um, I I had abandoned pop music because I felt like that um, when I was young, my relationship to music was very pure, that there was no, there was no commercial pressure. There was no money involved. It was only about me and, and my love of the music. And, you know, having survived this uh, career as a minor pop person with all the pressures of tours and making videos and doing press and this sort of thing, um, uh, I, I felt like that had all gotten in between me and my, my love of the music. So 
the compromise was, well, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll be this uh, record producer and work with other groups. Uh, and I, I did have some, uh, some successes. The most notable was a, 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 I did two records for a, a group in Spain called Los, Los Planetas for RCA, uh, who were one of the, who were basically the big indie group of the 90s in Spain. Uh, I, I had lost contact with them, but somebody contacted me two years because they were writing a book about them. And the premise of the book was that uh, one of the albums that I produced for them was kind of like the Nirvana Nevermind in Spain in the 1990s. Uh, I, I hadn't realized that they had achieved that level of success. Um, but yeah, but also, you know, production was, did seem like, uh, I, I, I realized that, you know, to, to, uh, I, I just didn't want to have any sort of contact with the music industry. And, and so I, I abandoned the production. I went back to school. I um, returned to one of my original uh, loves, which was uh, visual art. And I had always been kind of, uh, good with computers, so I, uh, my trajectory was that I, uh, I got an undergraduate degree in computer science, and then I obtained a, a graduate degree in art criticism, a, a master's of fine art in art criticism. Um, I began teaching at university uh, initially as a adjunct professor, and now I'm a professor of the practice at Tufts University in digital media. So my for, for the the last uh, uh, 12 years I've made my living basically teaching, teaching artists how to use technology. And uh, so with my degrees, I'm somebody who's good at uh, technology, but is also thought very deeply about art and culture. And um, I sometimes also do teach sound courses, and I teach a very popular course called Sound and Moving Image, which is about uh, mostly about the history of cinema and the way that sound and music works in cinema. Um, I, I had also done some work actually doing scoring for, for films in the uh, um, late 90s. Uh, and I, I actually wrote some, some very nice music that post-UVS that was used in some uh, uh, you know, alternative feature films. Uh, not, nothing in the mainstream, in the, yes. nothing Hollywood. Um, Right. So that's basically my trajectory. Uh, you know, uh, also in, in concurrent with my teaching, I also exhibit as a contemporary fine artist. So I mostly make videos and I, I make uh, prints of still images. Sometimes the installation works or sometimes performance based work. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm a hyphen uh, fine artist, uh, 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 art educator. Uh, I will say that uh, after a very long time, uh, I kind of did resolve my my conflict with music. I, this this feeling that I no longer could access my pure love of music because uh, because of my horrible experience of being this kind of minor pop person and handling the pressures of uh, touring and doing press and making videos and handling that pressure so badly. Um, it made it very difficult for me to, to feel comfortable or, or feel good about being involved in music. Uh, in, the, in the past five years ago, I, I, five years or so, I've, I've overcome that discomfort, and I'm now involved in music again. However, I, I'm not involved in pop music. I'm, 
I'm making uh, experimental, improvised, uh, avant-garde jazz music, and uh, quite. I, I actually perform regularly in New York City, and quite regularly there's uh, more people on stage than there are in the audience. <laughs> but what? Uh, I'm happy. I'm happy finally. So um, the. Uh, I guess the moral of the story is that you know you really need to do what you're 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 meant to do, yeah. and uh, even if uh, even if it's uh, less exciting or or, or uh, less comprehensible to other people, you, know, you you have to do what you have to do. And uh, I um, I don't know. I I am I'm, I'm proud of the ultra vivid scene records. I'm especially proud of the. The difficult third record that had a, a small audience, I, I actually think it's a, a very strong statement, even though maybe it, it, it never uh, found the, the audience that it, it, that statement could have spoken to. Um, however, you know, I, I have really left that behind. And, you know, when you're, uh, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're a very different sort of person when you're twice that age or older. And um, I, I, I do feel that I'm, I'm a, a different person. And I think that to change or change continuously through your life is, is not a bad thing. And it's a, it's a healthy, positive thing. And I, I prefer to be somebody that, that changes throughout one's life rather than, um, you know, somebody who spends the rest of their, their lives trying to recapture a certain glorious moment in their, in their twenties. Uh, I, I, when, when I abandoned the, the UVS project, it, that was my biggest fear that I would be, uh, somebody in their fifties trying to, you know, pretend that they're still in their twenties. And I said, no, 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 that, that's not me. There's, there's more to life. Yeah. Well, that sounds like you navigated that well. It's kind of interesting because, because a lot of the bands that I've interviewed from that, you know, the 80s period, I think they all, you know, a lot of people just put, put, you know, put away their instruments and sort of went and did quite different things, but have slowly sort of come back. And they're not, I mean, there's kind of a variety. Some have kind of, want, a few have kind of playing their old stuff, but a few are just kind of doing it as a solo thing, though, you know, in brackets, you know, member of such and such a band, you know, because obviously... They, they get an audience of probably about 20 or 30 people. And, you know, it probably helps if they can say, well, I was, you know, I was the lead singer of the Brilliant Corners or the Weather Prophets. It means that they might get another five people come along to see them. But they're not that bothered. I think they just quite enjoy playing music again just for the for the love of it because actually they kind of miss it. But, but yes, it's interesting because I think Peter Astor from... Um, the Weather Prophets, he went on, and I think that's his day job, is, is uh, lecturing in, in music and music production and writing how to write music. So I think he enjoys it, and I think he's got a balance now. So it's, it's interesting that you're also still doing your creative art. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, yeah, as I say, it's just important to enjoy what you do. And... Um, you know the 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 when you're young, uh, I, I think there can be a kind of pressure for outside validation. I think most people in their twenties who play music, they really do care about what people think, and in fact, that might be the main reason they're doing it. You know, they want to be the, the, the person on stage getting the attention from the opposite sex or the same sex, or they uh, they want to be the person who uh, you know seems to be considered somebody who has something important to say or you know, this sort of thing. But 
you know, when you get older, hopefully, you know, part of what, uh, you know, uh, growing up is, is understanding that uh, there's certain things that uh, it's far more important what it means to you or, or, or uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you confront yourself in the mirror, there isn't anyone else in the mirror. It is just you. So um, I, I, uh, for, for me, this, this is what it meant. It meant that I, I, to, 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 to be honest, um, I, I, I do, uh, you know, I, I do love uh, certain some pop music, uh, and I, uh, you know, I, I was involved with it, but I didn't actually grow up listening to pop music, and in some ways, it was a, a foreign language to me. Um, and maybe, maybe I was a little bit of a, not a native speaker of pop music. Maybe I was somebody who, uh, you know, was learning it as a second language. And, um, uh, ultimately maybe that was a good reason for me to move on as well, because, uh, uh, maybe I should focus on my, my first language, which is, uh, a, a music that, that maybe isn't meant to communicate to everybody, uh, and, and, and that's okay. I'm okay with it. And uh, I guess at the end of the day, that's the important thing that, that you feel good about what you do. Yes. And what do you, I mean, obviously it's kind of interesting because you're taking quite a few different paths in your narrative. I mean, what would you say to kind of, you'll say 18-year-old self if you'd bumped into them with your, you know, de- decades of experience? What would, you know, if you just thought, oh, I, just, I could just kind of say a few things to that person before they get too carried away? That's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, um, if you had asked me even five years ago, I would have said to 18-year-old Kurt, I would say, Kurt, 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 just don't do it. Walk away. Stay <laughs> in um, But if you ask me now, I would say... Kurt, 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 you're having a, a good time there. Go, go have fun. But uh, try, remember, it's not all about you. Try and be nicer to other people. Uh, you know, try to remember there are people who, who are on your side. Try to remember that, uh, you know, that uh, there are all different kinds of music and that if you're making a sort of music that people like, you know, that's a, a privilege. Uh, that's, that's probably what I would have uh, told Kurt. But, uh, uh, you know, as a, what I tell myself now is, uh, you know, Kurt, uh, you know, pop music is wonderful and it gives people a lot of pleasure. But if music, there's other music that gives you more pleasure, then that's, that's your music. You know, and you should feel good about, uh, uh, yeah, it's maybe not necessary to try to communicate to everyone all the time. Yes. Well, it's interesting because that is sort of yesterday we went down to London to the Barbican and we saw it was Barry Humphreys um, with an, an artist called Meow Meow and the Aurora, Aurora Orchestra. And they were playing music from the 1920s, 1930s German era, you know, the Weimar Republic, all this kind of quite sort of interesting and slightly dark and sinister um jazz i suppose it was very early jazz and and again you know you know luckily barry humphreys i don't know if you know him but he he creates that character called dame edna everidge but he has a lot of different interests as well so he loves this music from the 1920s german austria berlin period and and obviously that's got a bit of a niche market but again 
I found it fascinating. And then recently I interviewed from New York Donnie McCasklin, who was the, you know, jazz band. Um, and that was the, you know, the band that David Bowie picked for his last album, uh, yeah. Black Star. So, you, you know, it's kind of interesting how, you know, quite avant-garde music, but probably doesn't really get much of an audience, does occasionally sort of become quite big you know it has those moments that that when you're a bit bored of the pop music form you know we do enjoy delving into a totally different world yes yes i, I mean i think there should be room for both um you know uh I, I i you know you could say in a way it's a little bit like uh you know i i i think capitalism is okay but i don't think it's okay that uh, very few people get uh, the majority of the wealth. I, I don't think that's okay, right? Well, it's the same with the popularity in music. Uh, there are you know, a few artists that, that everyone listens to and everyone hears, and then there's a great many people that just get a tiny amount of interest or no interest at all. I just wish that, it, you know, as I wish that wealth could be redistributed, I wish that, uh, you know, people's attention to music could be distributed, redistributed a bit. Because, uh, you know, what if, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, even 10,000 fewer people uh, stopped listening to Taylor Swift and started listening to Barry Humphreys. I mean, that, that would be a triumph. Yes. Well, I, I yes, completely agree. I think in, our, in here uh, over at the UK, we were very lucky because we had John Peel. And I mean, obviously, he, you know, this, this was a person who... He did his best because he, you know, he was trying to, I think, from what I gather from listening to his interviews and reading stuff was was kind of realizing, well, actually, someone needs to be playing this music and none of my colleagues are going to play it for various reasons. So, you know, he took it upon himself to play things which could be Bulgarian folk music, could be a very early rap album, an African album, you know, you know, Napalm Death with, you know, their three seconds of sort of noise. You know, I think he just realized that, well, someone's made this music and it's not going to be in the top 10 and it's not going to get on top of the pots because people want to hear, you know, Dire Straits or Duran Duran. So I think it was great when you have champions like that who look at music in the way that you almost look at capitalism. Of, well, actually, airtime or print time, you know, in newspapers and magazines need to sort of, you know, encourage this because, you know, you never know, like Donnie McClasklin and his jazz band, you know, David Bowie, thought, actually, you know, these guys are going to be brilliant for my next project. I think he was trying to work with different people. And I think, um, yes, they were the ones who, who were on his album and probably were completely like, I can't believe we're playing with David Bowie, you know. So it's, yeah, it's necessary. Otherwise, you don't get genius like Black Star. Right. I, I agree. And, you know, what you're describing about John Peel, I mean, you could say in a way that's uh, socialism. Uh, socialism is the idea that there has to be some extra effort from the top down to to make sure that there's a little bit more uh, fairness going on. So uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't know if to, how how John Peel identified himself, but yeah, within within the realm of music, that that that's a, a socialist impulse. And maybe even what you know, David, what you're doing right now, trying to put, give attention to people who uh, maybe are not on many people's radar in 2018. Uh, that's a little bit like socialism too. So uh, let's just say for a minute. Uh, Maybe sometimes this socialist impulse can be a, a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think when it's done well, it is, it's always a beautiful thing, really. So um, <laughs> it'd be hard to say it's a, you know, it's a bad thing, really, isn't it? Helping others or trying to think of others. So, yes, there you go. Some people in America who wouldn't agree with you. But, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Well, some people don't like the National Health Service, and you think, well, yeah, but that's, that's a, isn't that a good thing? Perhaps yeah. not. <laughs> some people would think that, that that's just pure evil communism, but it's not really. Anyway, look. <laughs> so, look, Kirk, thank you ever so much for your time. And sorry about all the uh, other, other sort of random random moments i phoned you at eight in the morning but look yeah so look i'll tell you when i put this show out because that'll be fantastic and um yeah again you know thank you ever so much for your time because um it's it's just always amazing and yeehaw for skype you know without skype who knows exactly exactly yeah david again thank you uh you know i appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about this and uh, i i I I, uh, I like what you're doing very much. You know, so thank you for for uh, you know putting the effort in, into this. So, like I say, it's it's great when uh, you know the lesser known things to get get uh, somebody decides to put some attention or care or, or focus on them. So so thank you for that. No, well thank you. Anyway, have a fantastic day, and um, a brilliant summer. Great. Well, you, you too. Okay. Take, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. And that is the end of the interview. Thank you for listening. Sorry about the quality. It did slightly get hit and miss at times, which I have found speaking to people in New York. Bizarrely, their internet connection isn't always that strong. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. I will be there. And also these have all been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, thank you again. Stay safe. Have a great week.